Hello, everyone. I'm Sean Dubrovac from Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Reticle Research. Welcome back to another episode of Techspansive. Today, we're going to uh, dive right in, talking about a couple of smartphone brand-related stories uh, that have a huge amount of nostalgia value uh, from a time before the iPhone and high-end Android devices came to set the standard. Uh, and they are going in different directions. So first we have news that the uh, that BlackBerry, uh, the company that of course was best known for the keyboard-based smartphones and which had licensed its brand to TCL uh, to produce a couple of modern BlackBerry devices, will no longer be licensing its brand. So that uh, may signal the end of the line for a, uh, a storied uh, smartphone brand, uh, as, as well as um, an exception to what has been a, a number of companies that are trying to bring back these retro brands, including uh, Nokia, which is also a, a brand licensing deal, and, uh, and, and Razer, uh, which of course is a pre-smartphone brand that Motorola is trying to revive uh, in a new folding phone. And that's the second uh, story we wanted to chat about, the, uh, the new Razer, which is starting to get into the hands of reviewers and uh, not uh, overwhelming them. There doesn't necessarily seem to be a kind of uh, fatal flaw that, uh, that the initial uh, Samsung Galaxy Fold units had, but uh, reviewers are finding issue with the durability of the hinge, the bubbles or lack of completely flat surface that you're seeing in the folded display and, uh, and somewhat lackluster camera and, and battery life, uh, in, in which case, at least in terms of the camera, it, it would be an accurate throwback to the, uh, to the feature phone razors of yore, but that's certainly not what today's buyers want. So why don't, why don't we start with that second one? Sean, we've, we've talked a couple of times about how folding phones are an immature technology, about how they're still coming up the development curve. And this is an interesting example of trying to take that new technology and fit it into a form factor that is very faithful to uh, this once beloved flip phone uh, that had this uh, satisfying aspect of being able to end the call by, by closing the clamshell. Do you think that you know, this is something that's going to be important for Lenovo? Is it a setback for the category at large? Did you think there was some potential here that the implementation may jeopardize? You know, I think what we see happening when we when we look at the foldable smartphone is that if you look at the iteration of smartphone technologies, really going back to, say, 2007 with the original iPhone, and we move away from a physical keyboard at that time, and, and it's interesting that the, the stories kind of connect if you think about BlackBerry's legacy there of really dominating that space and, and mm -hmm. providing a physical keyboard. So we move away from a physical keyboard. And still, though, in those early days of, of smartphone technology, it was primarily still a telephony device. 
the browsing experience wasn't very good. We were on 3G networks, so we weren't streaming a lot of video content and multimedia content. And then slowly over time, apps begin to dominate. We're doing a lot of multimedia content. The sensors on the devices get very good, and so we're able to do more things, especially take photos. And that's been, I would say, a big focus over the last three years is on the the camera technologies. Arguably, we while that will inevitably get better as all of the technology does, we, we're probably at a, a local maximum at, at this point where we've where we've maxed some things out or we're at least satisfying the, the general need for for camera good technology. Enough. Yeah, yeah, good, good enough, enough in, in good most enough. instances. Yeah. Sure. And we know it'll get better, but uh, but we're very good right now. And so then the next piece you go to is how do we iterate this device in order to continue to sell volume when we've got a, a very high ownership rate. And then and that's that's what these mobile handset manufacturers are, are facing. Over the last decade, they benefited both from technology improving quickly over a short period of time, as well as adoption growing over this time. Now that you have relatively high adoption, especially in younger cohorts, you have very high adoption of, of cell phone technology and smartphone technology specifically. And so you're not getting a lot of added growth from new adoption. You're also not necessarily seeing the technological advances that we saw early on. And so the, you know, arguably the multimedia experience that we're having today is very similar to the multimedia experience we were having a year ago. How do we mix that up from a hardware perspective? I think you look at new, new form factors. And so there's been a lot of focus on what do we do with the display? Do we fold it? Do we multiply it? Do we add multiple displays? you know, displays to it. And so you see dual display devices. That seems to be the the big focus. And there's been so much invested in that space right now from a hardware manufacturer standpoint that it will continue at least for the next 12 months. You've had Microsoft and others talking about bringing out dual displays this year. And so I think that that momentum is there to at least see where this will will go. Yeah, you know, uh, it's, of course, difficult to remember now, but when the Razer was first introduced, it was a premium device. I mean, I don't remember what the initial price was or what it would be in 2020 dollars, but it was uh, groundbreaking in terms of the slimness of, uh, the, of the device back then. And this, uh, of course, is not an inexpensive device either. It's less expensive than some of the other folding phone, folding screen devices we've seen. But I still think it's about $1,600. Um, and so the question becomes, you know, it's one thing to look at something like the uh, this uh, Surface Duo device uh, that you alluded to with the multiple screens. Uh, Microsoft says one reason that they went with that approach is because of affordability. You know, it's very mature technology, and it may not be as slick as a folding display, but it achieves some of the same benefits of more screen real estate in a relatively compact form factor. Uh, But if I'm paying $1,600 for a phone, I'm going to want a pretty darn good camera in there, and I'm going to want... Uh, some pretty pretty good battery life uh, in, in that kind of device because simply because the competition, you know, to your point, Sean, is just so compelling these days. I, I think that's a very difficult ask. And I wonder, um, 
you know, I think that uh, Motorola or now Lenovo, the parent company, has been obsessed for a long time with this Razer brand uh, and wanting to recapture the cachet of, of that brand. Sure. Uh, and, and even before this, a few years ago, they tried, uh, you know, they tried resurrecting it with a, with a phone called the Droid Razer, which, which was a very slim uh, smartphone. Um, and I guess that did okay, whatever. That was also a Verizon exclusive. Um, so I, I think that it, it is, um, it's, it's leading them astray a, a little bit. And, and that, uh, you know, they're certainly not going to be the only company to pursue this form factor. If you look at the device, it's got, you know, that thick little chin, just like the old Razer had. And that's not a good thing. You know, just because it looks like the original Razer doesn't mean it's a good thing. And we've seen lots of prototypes of other devices. Samsung is apparently working on one. You, you know that just because of their brand power and distribution, whatever, it's going to outsell the Razer uh, probably by, uh, you know, a, a, an exponential factor. Uh, so I, I think it's kind of time to maybe maybe retire this idea. but. I, I can also understand why the temptation is there. Hey, you had a you had a folding device. Now you've got a folding screen. Let's put them together and see what happens. I, I think the interesting thing from Lenovo's perspective that they announced at the end of last year that the uh, mobile division had become profitable. That that the Motorola brand had become profitable which is huge because they were losing money for many, many years. And the way they have reached profitability is through the mid-range, uh, I believe. You know, I don't, I don't think the Moto mods have been flying off the shelf. I think it's been that G series that they have done a very good job iterating on. I think they're up to the G8 now and they're solid phones. But we'll, we'll see what happens as the big guys pay more attention to that mid-range. Because Samsung, for example, is... Um, now focusing a lot on its A series, which, and if you look at these devices, they look good. You know, they're being sold at these second tier carriers, uh, Cricket, Metro PCS, uh, and they have 6.3 inch screens and they're edge to edge. And they look like something I think anyone would be happy to carry around in their pocket. So I understand what some of the advantages are of their premium line. Uh, but, but, you know, t to the point we're just making, they are good enough uh, in, in many ways. So, so we'll, we'll see where that goes. Um, talking about the, the BlackBerry stuff, uh, this one was a little bit more puzzling to me. Uh, again, this was not a brand that was lighting the market on fire. Uh, and TCL had done only, I think, about two or three different devices under the BlackBerry brand over the course of what, maybe three years uh, that they've had the license. Uh, but there could be an, a number of factors at play. BlackBerry may want to be focusing on its core business. Maybe they weren't happy with TCL. Maybe, uh, you know, maybe the, uh, the revenue wasn't, wasn't significant enough. But the interesting thing here is that TCL seemed to have wanted to continue the relationship. I mean, maybe they just couldn't agree on price. But Sean, you were saying you, you looked a little bit into uh, BlackBerry's numbers, and it seems like this could have been somewhat significant for them. Well, and it, it's tough to determine exactly what's showing up. But if you look at revenue from enterprise software, as you would expect, that's the, the, the bulk of their 
business and uh you know that's about um 45 percent or so of their of their revenue and then you see that licensing ip and other so this would have fallen into that is a, about a third of their of their revenue and was anticipated to to grow now some of that obviously is licensing and monetizing the patent portfolio and and they clearly have a a large patent portfolio they were very early into the mobile phone space and so their you know mobility licensing operations is is significant but um so you know they clearly have a business built around licensing their their ip and the blackberry brand to uh, to others so you know whether they're they're planning to then deliver this to brand to somebody else and let somebody else build it or or you know as as we were discussing they want to focus on the the automotive space and really drive you know drive it there they've Blackberry's QNX software is embedded in over 150 million vehicles. They only started reporting their automotive footprint in 2018. And so they've clearly done a lot of work there and a lot of focus there. At CES, you saw them pushing that operating system into a number of vehicles, including a number of uh, motorcycles mm. that that uh, garnered a lot of attention at CES. So you, you definitely see them pushing in that in that direction to to uh, drive the future of the brand. And, and one thing I would speculate uh, is that uh, as they ramp up this business, uh, they may be called upon to do more integration with more popular smartphone brands. You know, if you're, uh, I'm, I don't know all of their customers, but let's say Ford is one of their customers. And, you know, Ford may say, hey, you know, a lot of our customers have Samsung phones. Uh, is there anything we can do to streamline that experience uh, in, in terms of offering secure access to some of this information that, you know, the QNX operating system may be, may be powering uh, or Apple, um, and in that case, being perceived as a, a company that has a stake in a competitor may, uh, may, may be viewed unfavorably. Also at CES, uh, TCL uh, showed off uh, how strong a push they are planning to make in the North American market, but also globally, uh, with their own branded smartphones. So up till now, they really had two lines. Uh, their original one was the Alcatel line, uh, a brand license. And then they had the, uh, the BlackBerry line, which was, a, of course, a brand license. Uh, and then, uh, but now they're going full bore uh, with the TCL brand where they've seen quite a bit of growth in televisions. Uh, and so maybe that got BlackBerry thinking, hey, you know, the value of our brand as an asset here is only going to decrease uh, as these guys ramp up their own brand. Yeah, or vice versa. Maybe these conversations have been ongoing and TCL hedged early on and while while they've indicated that they'd like to continue to carry the blackberry brand and the blackberry branded uh, mobile phone it could be that they that they've been in discussions now for for many many months and tcl decided to uh build in some contingency plans right you know what's interesting that it seems like blackberry is really focused on their qnx embedded software solutions but that particular piece of the business is only about you know a fifth, maybe growing to a quarter of of revenues 
for the whole company. So arguably the licensing IPs. Well, they also do uh, mobile device right, management, right? right? Yeah, and, th and that's yeah. that enterprise software piece that, that does look like it's the, right. the bulk of their business, at, you know, 40, 44, 45% of their, of, of their total revenue. Okay. But um, at least from an external perspective, this, you know, it seems like there's a lot of focus on QNX embedded software. To your point, maybe they wanted to uh, be hardware agnostic in, in the mobile phone mm. space so that they could try to uh, appease all of their different constituents. So, uh, and it would be interesting. Maybe they'll come out with another partner. Maybe they'll get back in the space. I'm sure there's some within the company that <laughs> would love to be back in the in that market. That would be wild. I mean, I, I do have to say that um, <clears throat> I think TCL did a, a decent job with the license. Uh, you know, when they released what may go down as the the last BlackBerry, um, they actually talked a lot about the privacy and security. And I mean, yes, of course, the keyboard, which you could argue is uh, less of a, much less of a selling factor in a day when the size of the software buttons on these giant uh, smartphone screens is much larger than any key physical keyboard they could realistically put on uh, on a device. But that said, uh, they did a, if, if you like that tactile sensation, uh, they did uh, a great job with it. It felt great. There were all these fun shortcuts where what what they did was, I, I think, uh, they respected the tradition, right? And here I, <laughs> I'm, I'm being a little hypocritical because I just kind of slammed Motorola for this. But, but if you were a BlackBerry user from the days of yore and you were used to things like hitting the T button to go to the top of a list, that worked in, in a lot of uh, the apps that they developed. And they, they did a fair amount of software development around that thing. Uh, so, um, so for folks who, uh, who, who like that approach, uh, hopefully it, it continues on somewhat, but uh, there also seems to be a, uh, at least a, a fair probability that, that this could be the, the end of the line. Um, now, uh, there will be certainly other phones that will be shown off uh, later this month uh, with, with many other brands at Mobile World Congress, although not as many uh, as might have been shown uh, because of the coronavirus that is causing a, a number of companies to pull out, uh, most notably LG, uh, Ericsson, uh, the giant uh, uh, infrastructure company that... Uh, has gotten a fair amount of um, uh, garnered a fair amount of discussion lately in terms of uh, the U.S. eyeing it as an alternative to Huawei, and uh, and 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 less you know perhaps less significantly in the smartphone space, Nvidia, uh, although they are very active in other mobile technologies like uh, self self driving cars and and AI. Sean, of course, you know you you have had an insider's view into into trade shows from your, your days with the Consumer Technology Association. How does this impact uh, a juggernaut show like like? Yeah, Mobile this World is Congress? really bad news for, for Mobile World Congress. I mean, this is, <laughs> and, and this highlights the delicacy of these global gatherings. They, they, they right. are built upon the premise that people will travel around the world to come and converge on a single event over a few number of days to, to partake in conference tracks, meetings, and they're, you know, these, at these events, a tremendous amount of 
business gets done. It isn't always evident, but there's right. a lot of business meetings that take place at these type of events. And so to see these large companies pull out like, like, uh, you know, LG Ericsson, especially, and for anyone who's been to mobile world Congress, exhibitors like Ericsson take up a tremendous amount of, of booth space. And even in mm -hmm. the case of Ericsson, will often lock that down, only making that booth space available to their prearranged clients and, and client visits. So they're trying to conduct a, a lot of business there. They're not necessarily trying to, uh, showcase things to the to the broad public but really drive the message home to their individual constituents and and it isn't uncommon for companies this large to bring a thousand plus em employees into the city mm -hmm. and so um it wouldn't surprise me at all if if mobile world congress were to be down 20 30 40 percent with respect to their attendance numbers, given where we are in the, the coronavirus outbreak, and that it's still growing. If you look at the numbers coming out daily from the World Health Organization, you, you clearly see that it continues to grow, especially pronounced in, in China, of course, but, uh, but there's apprehension around the world. And companies are definitely put tying down their uh, their travel. So they're cutting back their their travel globally. Right. And so that is, you know, even if there's minimal risk, uh, it yes, the fact that corporations are making corporate policies around this will Im impact events like Mobile World Congress. Yeah, to your, to your point about it being a customer-centric show, it, it does receive a, a lot of media coverage, but it is a very different show than CES, uh, where a lot of the focus is on manufacturers connecting with retailers and product uh, in, in terms of the media. Yes, there are some high-profile smartphone releases uh, at Mobile World Congress and a fair number of lower-profile ones. But, uh, but really, at its heart, it's an infrastructure show, right? So, so there's just not something super sexy about uh, new cellular antennas and and base stations, you know, that doesn't get covered outside of the uh, trade media. So, so yes, to your point, uh, companies like Ericsson, Nokia, uh, ZTE have massive booths at uh, at this show. Uh, that the, kind of the way the conference hall is laid out, there are these giant like wings. There's like a main hall. And then there are these these large halls that kind of break off uh, from it. Uh, on the side, it looks almost like a tree, right, with, with branches coming out. Uh, and uh, Huawei has, uh, I mean, I, it's been a few years since I've been there, uh, but uh, it, it's practically a, a city. Uh, I, I don't think I've ever seen so large a, a trade show booth um, anywhere. Uh, and it seems to be a particularly tough blow for that company in terms of timing uh, because, you know, uh, in, in the wake of its struggles in the U.S. and depending on how you view the situation in the U.K., maybe they're, uh, you know, the U.S. May, may not be pleased that the U.K. is allowing Huawei equipment at all in its network. But if you're Huawei, uh, you're still disappointed because Vodafone, uh, for example, is ripping out a lot of their equipment in, in the core network. So they'll still be able to sell there, but uh, they won't have access to a lot of the market uh, that, that they had before. So here's your 
your probably best chance uh, to do business with the rest of the continent where you've been really strong. I mean, that's that's been a huge, uh, probably you know, I, probably your your second biggest market outside of China, uh, and now you know this happens and and you're stymied. Where even if you're sending a large contingent, uh, a lot of the folks you want to be talking to there may not be coming. Well, and the other big piece of this is that we're in the early days of a decade-long deployment around 5G. And, right. and Mobile World Congress has historically been best positioned to talk about the, the future of cellular technology. And so the 5G w- would clearly be a dominant story uh, at as, Mobile as World Congress. As it has been you know, for every year for that, the that's past right. you know, five years. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, and and, uh, and you know, and so I think that there there's a lot of investment that's being deployed in the five G arena that would be be highlighted here, and and clearly some of that is going to be uh, overcasted by the coronavirus, and and uh, you know, I think many of the stories coming out of Mobile World Congress will be focused on on how light attendance is and right. what it what it feels like. And and even among companies that may not be pulling out completely, a lot of them are scaling back a lot, you know. So uh we've seen coverage about Microsoft rethinking, you know, who it's sending, uh and and I'm sure there will be uh other um, I'm sure there there's more to come. Uh more more bad news for the event. Well, and it will be interesting to see. I mean, we're we're watching the coronavirus on a week on a daily basis. We still have two weeks until Mobile World Congress. Obviously, people would be have probably long thought out their plans, or if not, if they're booking last minute, they're probably booking those plans. You know, in the next week, right, or so. And so, if they they, they hesitate and hold off, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Right. Okay, so uh, the last company we wanted to talk about today is Uber, uh, which uh, which announced earnings, uh, and a relatively good story to tell on the core ride-sharing business, uh, but a lot of scrutiny on uh, Uber Eats, the, the delivery service, as uh, the company says it is uh, looking to become profitable within the next year and understands the changing climate uh, in terms of uh, patience uh, for for profitability. So, uh, Sean, you, you want to kind of share what, what you're seeing there? Yeah, exactly what you, what you mentioned, Ross. A generally good quarter for, uh, for Uber that they reported uh, quarterly revenue of $4.1 billion. That's up 37% year over year. Gross bookings up 28%. And so the, that core ride-hailing unit is is doing well. Profitable today accounts for about 75% of, of the company's total revenue. And it's kind of these other segments that include Uber Eats, long-haul trucking, everything they're doing around self-driving cars, um, that the other 25% that are really the, um, the, the piece that are keeping them from from profitability. So we saw some important pushes towards profitability from their CEO uh, as part of their announcements. He noted that, uh, quote, we recognize that the era of growth at all costs is over, uh, close quote. He moved up their timing for profitability from Q1 of 2021 to Q4 of 2020. So Ross, as, as you alluded to, 
he essentially gave himself 12 months to, to move the company into uh, to full profitability, not just uh, within specific units, but across the entire company. Arguably, the uh, the financial markets were giving him 12 months, and so maybe his move to uh, to bring it to <laughs> Q4 2020 was aligned with what he was hearing from the public markets. Right. But if you if you look at their uh, you know the, their losses, they had negative EBITDA of 615 million for the quarter. Uber Eats by itself had 461 million of mm. of adjusted negative EBITDA for the quarter. So you can see that the bulk of their loss is coming from from Uber Eats. Now they're they're spinning off their India portion of that. And it'll be interesting to see over the 12 months if they spin off more pieces of the business in order to gain profitability. Do they shut down development of self-driving cars? Do they do you know, other things like that? Do they move away from the drone shuttles that we've seen uh, in recent years in order to gain profitability? Or do they think that they can rein in costs while extending revenue. I feel like just personally, I've seen a lot of promotions for Uber Eats lately. So maybe they feel like there's there's still a chance to really grow revenue. And, and they have definitely seen some very strong growth in that, uh, in that revenue category. If you, if you look at what Uber Eats has done, you know, it's definitely on a year-over-year basis doing quite well. Gross bookings is up 73% in the fourth quarter net revenue was up 154%. So they're they're doing well, but at the same time, they had a, the adjusted EBITDA got worse from the third quarter to the fourth quarter and is worse on a year-over-year basis. So the, there's a lot of costs that will need to be reined in. Yeah, I, I think that, so there's a, a few things there. Uh, I think Uber Eats is an interesting uh, division or initiative of the company because it's something for which there is clearly proven demand and there's a market there and there are established competitors, you know, Seamless and DoorDash and uh, that are are also uh, growing. I think Uber Eats has a differentiated approach um, and I think it's also kind of important to something that you know, it's kind of funny. We we talked about it late last fall. Uber had this weird announcement that it was going to become the lifestyle OS. So if you're going to make that argument that you're a platform, there has to be other stuff on the platform. And this to me, uh, you know, it's not just, it, it doesn't just have the potential to be a strong business, but but I think it's it's kind of clear, uh, it's it's crucial to the positioning. Um, and And so, I think this one is is worth pursuing uh, at least for a while, particularly if you know, as you say, Sean, they can they can show some positive momentum there, some good growth there, uh, even if it's not in the black yet. Uh, but some of the other things that you mentioned, I think, uh, would go a long way toward showing the street that they are serious about. Uh, becoming more focused on things that have a shorter path to profitability. So the self-driving cars, I mean, that's that's an expensive uh, initiative, but you could see how it's potentially core to the um, to the future of the company, and uh, you know, just would justify a fair amount of R and D effort there. 
how it could open the door to some partnerships. Um, so, so that's probably one I, I would also be a little hesitant to cut. Other things like Uber Copter, uh, the service that they offer here in New York City uh, at $200 a seat, and particularly uh, this uh, wild vision uh, that they showed off at, at CES, a partnership with Huawei, uh, I'm sorry, with Hyundai, uh, to, uh, uh, that, that was one of the most uh, out there visions of the future of urban transportation I have ever seen with uh, flying cars was just the beginning. Just the beginning, right? Uh, you had uh, these uh, these taxis. You had these mobile pods that that went all around the city and converted into stores and libraries and community gathering places. And there were these these you know hubs that connected your flying cars to your pods. I mean, look, who knows how much if they may not be spending a dime on on any of this stuff yet, uh, and uh, may just be kind of lending their name to the initiative to uh, drive a, a bit more credibility. Uh, but, um, you know, if, if they were to start expending any serious engineering resources there, uh, as an investor, uh, that, would, that, that would not sit well with me. There was at CSO a lot of talk in the automotive space about robo-taxis. And so the, the flip side of that is that are you hedging your bets on what the future will look like? And are you going to be there to, uh, y- you know, to be a meaningful player in that space? And I think that's the tough trade-off between making investments that, that arguably will define the future and making them too soon and too early when the, that future is, is long, you know, potentially many, many years away and, and sure. long from materializing. So, I mean, just look, look at all the regulatory concerns that still have to be worked out around cars that drive themselves on the ground, okay? Right. And, and also take all the drone legislation, right, that, that, and regulation that has to be worked out. And these are for tiny little things, right, that, that might drop off uh, a cable, you know, that, that you ordered from Amazon, right? Take both of those things and uh, take them to the exponential value of, you know, take your pick, right? But but some factor of 10, you know, or 100. Uh, and, and then I think you, you start to get a sense of what has to happen uh, before there's even any kind of regulatory framework for flying cars. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, so. I don't, I don't disagree with that. All right. So we'll see, we'll see. You know, I, I don't want to slam them too hard on this because, uh, again, who knows how much of this is just PR, you know, versus uh, versus a real serious initiative. I, I think they may well just be uh, seeing what Hyundai uh, can produce here, and then. Uh, we'll we'll see where it goes from there. Well, and I did just see that they just gained permission from uh, from California. They announced that they had permission from California to run self driving vehicles in California, and right. they noted that they had no intent to do so. so okay, interesting. Feel, so that potentially says you know they've got their testing where they where they want it to be geographically, and they're going to continue to probably test in those environments but there's not necessarily the, the need today to 
to uh, move into other geographic areas. It's interesting because there's probably a lot of other businesses that they could enter into that are much closer to to coming to fruition. If you think of the data that they're capturing just from their ride hailing business and their eats business, maybe there's an opportunity to uh, provide that data back and monetize that data back to their their customers. Maybe not so much from Mm. the ride hailing piece, but certainly from the eats piece of who's ordering what, when are they ordering it? That could easily become a a valuable source of of intelligence for restaurants. And so, you know, maybe maybe that becomes a a business that helps them move towards profitability. Yep. Mapping uh, might might be another one. Yep. uh, In terms of route efficiency, traffic, you know, all that stuff. So. Yeah. Well, uh, I think that's going to wrap it up in terms of what we've got on the docket for this week. So uh, we want to thank you, uh, as always, for listening. Uh, I'm Ross Rubin at Reticle Research. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin. And I'm Sean Dubrovac from Avrio Institute. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Dubrovac. Thanks so much. And we look forward to having you on our next episode.